own at 20% of GDP in terms of market value. Uh, and now it's basically totally collapsed. And the local governments have uh, this huge deficit, uh, uh, like a, a trillion US dollars, because they, they are not getting money from land sales. Mm. Uh, that problem is not going away. So it's not just COVID. Mm. Okay, Andy, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed uh, for that. That's independent-based economist up in Shanghai, Andy Sher. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And let me give you a final update on the markets in Australia. The SX200 up a quarter of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is looking pretty flat, as is the Cosby uh, in South Korea as well. Uh, looks like the Hang Seng is going to rebound close to 500 points or so at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Back chats coming up after the news with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy. Cool in the morning and at night. Joy with sunny periods in the afternoon. Maximum temperatures about 20 degrees and then mainly fine in the next few days. Temperature right now, 17 degrees, 72% relative humidity. <laughs> Times 8.31. Here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. A medical professor is recommending people get another COVID vaccine dose if the last jab was several months ago. Vijay Dhanasekaran, an associate professor from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health, said Hong Kong was witnessing a seasonal surge in case numbers. He said this was expected as social interactions increased and improved vaccination rates meant more asymptomatic cases in the community. But he said hospital admissions were not shooting up. This is not due to any novel variant. These are just the regular variants which have been evolving, acquiring some mutations and escaping some immunity, which we acquired from the first type of vaccine, especially based on the earliest variants that have been circulating. Based on this, we have now seen the upgrade of new vaccine, the bivalent vaccine. And really, I think the best time, really the position in Hong Kong is really clear that the cases are rising, but it's not burdensome. Three Taikonauts have returned to Earth, completing a six-month mission to complete the construction of the Tiangong space station. The Shenzhou 14's return capsule touched down at the Dongfeng landing site in Inner Mongolia last night. Todd Harding reports. The capsule touched down safely at the Dongfeng landing site in the Inner Mongolia Autonomous Region shortly after 8 p.m. Commander Chen Dong and teammates Liu Yang and Tsai Suzhe all said they were feeling well after landing. Work at the Tiangong space station has been taken over by the crew of Sunjo 15, marking the space station's first crew rotation. During their mission, the three Taikonauts performed three spacewalks, beamed down a live science lecture from the station, and conducted a range of experiments. The European Commission president says the EU must simplify and adapt its rules on state aid in response to Washington's massive green energy subsidy package. The plan has soured transatlantic ties, raising fears of a trade war. Ursula von der Leyen said the EU must act to address distortions created by Washington's nearly half a trillion US dollar plan to spur climate-friendly technologies. She said that properly handled, competition could spur new green solutions. Together, the United States and the European Union, we can make clean energy more affordable worldwide if we work together. But this competition must respect a level playing field. And that's why it is so critical that the technology competition between the European Union and the United States is a race to the top for our industries on both sides of the Atlantic. 
Iran's attorney general says the group of religious police who enforce the Islamic dress code have been disbanded. Mohammad Jafar Montazeri's comments follow months of protests triggered by the death of a young woman in their custody. The BBC's Siavash Ardalan reports. This is a potentially significant development as it makes the protesters feel like they have made an impact and forced the government to retreat. However, the announcement comes with many caveats. Firstly, that it wasn't even an announcement, rather an offhand remark by Iran's attorney general, who is not part of the decision-making process on this issue. Secondly, the morality police effectively vanished after the death of Mahsa Amini in his custody, so nothing has changed on the ground. Thirdly, disbanding the morality police is one thing. Abolishing the law requiring women to wear a headscarf, which the morality police enforce, is another. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your guest presenter today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about uh, increases in the cost of living after Hong Kong was ranked as uh, the joint fourth most expensive city in the world in 2022. A survey by the Economist Intelligence Unit put New York and Singapore jointly at the top of the rankings, with Tel Aviv in Israel coming third. The EIU said the average cost of living was up 8.1% in 172 major cities worldwide, the fastest rate of increase for at least 20 years, citing the Russia-Ukraine conflict, rising interest rates and exchange rate shifts. And at 9.20 this morning, we'll be joined by RTHK sports reporter Atom Chung with the latest on the Football World Cup. If you'd like to get involved, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And we're joined now on the line by Sumana Rajaretnam, the Southeast Asia Director of the Economist Intelligence Corporate Network, and also Dr. Rita Lee, Associate Professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Shuyan University. Um, good morning to you both. Perhaps, uh, Mr. Rajaretnam, we can come to you first. Hello. Hi there. Good morning. Thank, thank you very much for joining us. Um, so, uh, yeah, very interesting survey. I mean, obviously, you make the point that uh, inflation is a major factor in the increases in uh, living costs. Of course, that 8.1% figure, that's worldwide. Uh, in Asia, it was more like 4.5%, I think. So w w how do you account for uh, Singapore uh, being at the top of the rankings this time? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, take a step back and let's look at how all of the countries, all of the cities have moved up in terms of their cost of living. And it's important to understand what the drivers of these inflation uh, numbers are and why the cost of living has increased. And then I'll come to Singapore. The, the first part of it is that, you know, as we were coming out of the pandemic, a lot of supply chains were already cut and governments had flushed their cities and their countries with kind of stimulus money to keep the economy going 
uh, during the pandemic. Um, and that sort of was the initial push for inflation and prices rising. And then, you know, we, we got out of the pandemic. Um, and as we emerged from it, supply chains couldn't keep up with demand. And that pushed prices up. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, as we came into March of this year with the Ukraine war, that caused supply chains to contract even more. Um, and then uh, that also put some food off of the market and that drove up food prices. Now, central banks reacted to the U.S. Fed raising interest rates, which pushed up the U.S. currency. And all of those factors combined, uh, you know, really pushed most countries up in terms of their cost, cost of living. So a lot of movements that we are seeing on the index this year. With mm. Singapore in particular, it's always been a relatively expensive city. It's finished uh, in top place uh, as the most expensive city eight out of the last 10 years that we've conducted the survey. Mm. It's, a, it's a premier destination for, for business investments. Uh, it attracts a lot of um, top talent for migration that pushes up prices. Uh, of course, in Singapore, too, when we look at the index, some things like food, clothing, uh, petrol uh, and transport, all very expensive in this city uh, that pushes us up, up the rankings. So in, in a sense, good morning, Mr. Uh, in a sense, then, higher prices are a sign of success. In, in a sense, it's, it's a much more complicated uh, uh, way of looking at it, I would suggest, though, right? So right. It, it is most, if you look at all of the cities, Hong Kong is in the top 10, New York, San Francisco, all in the top 10. Those are all very attractive cities to, to live, uh, and they tend to be the more expensive ones, right? And if you look at the, the, the bottom 10, you know, the cheapest cities in the world, perhaps not such good investment destinations, and there are many reasons for that. But, you know, whether what we look at in this survey is the cost of living, um, uh, what we don't look at is what is the ability of the people that live in that city to cope with the, with the cost of living, right? So that's a factor of prices, that's a factor of wages, that's a factor of things like government support or subsidies and safety nets. And it doesn't sort of offset the quality of life. So you're not getting, uh, it, does, it doesn't measure value for money in a sense. It doesn't measure value for money. So this particular tool that we've got, uh, it, it, it is good in the sense that we compare very similar or the exact same goods and services across the 173 cities. So as a measure of comparison, um, it is very accurate in that sense. Now, each government, each city, you know, you said in, in Hong Kong, um, they would collect different goods and services for their own measures of inflation. Both of these measures are, are good, but they, they essentially measure slightly different things. Okay. okay. Uh, Rita Lee, good morning to you. Morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, um, any uh, surprises for you in the outcome of this latest survey? Well, actually, I think the um, the outcome of this survey it actually reflects the situation in Hong Kong, where there is a still a high rent and also high labor costs, despite there's like a trend in like lowering rent and then uh, lowering co- uh, labor costs due to a poor economy. Um, but then the, uh, the major fact is that uh, we have seen that most of the uh, goods are imported from uh, outside, and the daily necessities like vegetables and goods imported from mainland China, and then yet the China zero. Uh, COVID policies have actually caused a supply chain a disruption where there is a raising cost. And then uh, this is actually very clearly evidence in uh, the vegetables, for example, in the supermarket. 
And then um, the war in Ukraine and also Western section in the in Russia actually raised the energy cost today. Like for example, today's uh, Japanese news in uh, NHK, uh, it has said that it has to cut down the energy from the first of December till the end of the March in 2023. So that uh, this just tell us that well the uh, uh, the energy cause uh, the energy is, uh, problem is like uh, is is like uh, the worldwide issue, and then uh, the energy cost increase also uh, drive up uh, many other uh, production uh, process increasing uh, increasing cost and price, and then. Um, uh, when we see that the, there is a general overall increase in inflation rates, and then Hong Kong, we have got the imported goods uh, for for most of the uh, parts of our daily lives, then uh, this sort of like average price increase is the strongest in the uh, uh, 20 years uh, that we have ever seen. Uh, that of course that we have got an increase in the in the inflation uh, uh, problem that we have got in Hong Kong. Is there anything governments can or should be doing about this? Well, I think uh, actually the main thing that Hong Kong government that they may do is that uh, in case of like, for example, electricity costs, we can see there is a huge difference between the two major suppliers in Hong Kong. And then uh, so uh, we, we may ask a question like why one that they can increase in a, such a high, uh, a high price as compared to the others. And then, uh, so that to some extent, this kind of things that probably the government may uh, may do, because actually, energy is uh, uh, energy prices is the main cause of the issue when we talk about the cause of everything. Uh, we we cannot produce anything in absence of energy. Like a restaurant, for example, that uh, when we see a Chinese restaurant now that they have to raise by uh, thirty thousand dollars after the increase in the electricity cost. So under this situation, uh, when the number of customer cannot be returned to the original level, so who should who have to bear uh, this increment in the electricity cost? Ultimately, it will go back to the uh, to the customer. So that uh, I think the uh, one of the things probably that is related to this part, and then uh, of course that uh, the government in the long run, in the long run, the government should uh, encourage. Uh, the usage of the green energy, so that, like for example, uh, solar panel or some other things, so that it reduces reliance on the on the electricity uh, company production in uh, in in that way. Mr. Rajaratnam, anything you think governments can and should do? Yeah, I think you know it really depends on on where your inflation is coming from. So, right. as the other speaker said, you know, if you are importing a lot of energy, if you're importing a lot of food. That means that you know inflation is going to go up. Governments have to decide: Do you want to provide some kind of a safety net? Do you want to provide subsidies for, say, fuel, for example, um, or do you want to provide subsidies in a in a different way to support segments of the population that are hardest hit by the increase in the in the cost of living? You know, there's no way around it when we look at it. You know, highest inflation in 20 years uh, overall across all the goods category. That's 8.1 percent in the energy category. Globally, it's 11 percent, uh, and some cities are, are hurt by energy more than others, right? So in Western Europe, energy costs have gone up by 30 percent, just an incredible rise because of the dependence of those cities on Russian energy. And do these um, figures so capture all of the all of the recent changes? I'm thinking here in Hong Kong, we've we've got this sort of 40 percent plus on Hong Kong Island for electricity. Presumably, you didn't capture that. That was last year. We conduct this survey twice uh, 
uh, a year, right? So right. We, we conducted in March and in September, and we have uh, analysts that are on the ground looking at prices in each of these cities, and they collect prices for, for around 200 goods. Uh, not all of the prices goes into uh, the cost of living, so we separate some of them out, um, and those are still available for people that want to uh, do the analysis on those prices. But I would imagine that for energy prices, we have captured it uh, uh, for the last time in September of this year. Yeah, uh, looking at the list, I see the uh, the major mainland China cities uh, are also getting more expensive. Uh, Shanghai is uh, in the top 20. What's driving the situation there? Yes, yeah, so in, in China, it's actually quite interesting because the, the top six most expensive cities have become more expensive. Uh, you know, the, the likes of Shanghai and Beijing and Shenzhen, all affected by the energy costs and uh, also a lot more demand for goods and services there. Um, however, for some of the other smaller uh, cities, so we have another 13 Chinese cities uh, in the mix, those cities have become have fallen down the rankings, so have become relatively cheaper uh, in comparison with other cities. So. And one of the main differences is that the more expensive cities in, in China um, are, are just a, a lot more dense and a lot more demand for goods and services there. What, were there any bright spots at all, places with re- relatively modest inflation compared to everyone else? Yes, there, there were. So, you know, in terms of bright spots uh, in Asia, Generally, because we are a bit more sheltered from the energy crisis in Europe and Russia, uh, inflation overall in Asia was about 4.5%, so lower than the the global average. Um, Also, cities or countries that are less dependent on Russian energy um, were more sheltered. So, you know, for example, Paris, uh, inflation there was much lower than the rest of their Western European peers. in Asia, some cities in, say, Australia, in uh, Jakarta is a good example, uh, Kuala Lumpur another good example, some buffer given by higher commodity prices, which meant that they were able to kind of absorb a little bit more price increases. So some, I wouldn't say, you know, bright spots, but some uh, cities where inflation was less of an issue, less of a rise. And of course, also some cities where inflation was a huge issue, right? Uh, Sri Lanka, Colombo, mm-hmm. that's one of them, uh, Istanbul as well. Okay. Do- Dr. Lee, what, what, what do you think the implications are of all this are for economic growth in 2023? In, in 2023, what we have uh, seen uh, when we see some uh, YouTube, for example, uh, that they report about what is happening outside the world, we can see that no matter it's uh, Japan or in uh, South Korea or in many places, you, have, uh, you, you may have seen that there are a lot of the shops that are still, they remain closed. So that the tourism has not yet come back. And then in Hong Kong, when we look at like uh, Chim Sa Choi, when we talk, look at uh, some other um, uh, tourism places, like for example, Mong uh, uh, you will see that actually there are a lot of the shops that, they, that remain closed as well. So uh, coupled with the case of the inflation, that is uh, something that is inevitable. Uh, what we have seen is that in 2003, we will, uh, we will see that we will enter to the era of, uh, to the era of the global stagnation. And then, uh, so this is uh, what the global uh, issue is like facing uh, in terms of the economy. Okay. Uh, email here from listener Mike says, uh, call it like it is. 
US government has printed trillions of dollars they don't have. The rest of the world caught the cold. Thank you, uh, Mike. Um, so, uh, according to this, uh, according to the EIU, you're expecting that uh, uh, global consumer price inflation will fall from an average of 9.4% this year to 6.5% in the coming year. Um, so, uh, d d uh, Rita Lee, do you, do you see, are you expecting an improvement there? Well, there are a lot of people who say that there will be an improvement in the next year in terms of the inflation. This is uh, what most of the, if, even if, uh, if the report uh, also says something like this. However, you will see that there are, um, uh, there are something for which the, the, the global facade has been uh, changing uh, in terms of like... Uh, uh, in terms of like uh, uh, energy and then in terms of like for example the global supply chain uh, actually like for example some of the shops that they are leaving in china so uh, last uh, yesterday by the time we we read uh, we see the news from the uh, abc news in the united states what they say is that uh, there are there are some of the companies that are leaving leaving china and then uh, uh, the main problem now we are facing is that because we have to find substitute when we have to uh, like switch the company from one place to another, so it means that there will be a kind of like increase in the price of the production in these of the companies. And then uh, actually this is something for which we are facing now. And then uh, whether or not the companies will go back to uh, the, uh, the cheaper price that they produce is a, is a big question because uh, 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 because after they leave, so if they have to move back, so they also have got a, a huge cost that is involved. And then um, so that um, what we may have seen is that, uh, well, the inflation situation will be improved, but then we cannot see uh, uh, um, a reason behind why that we have uh, a, a strong push in terms of like uh, pushing down the price uh, after this of the incidents in the COVID, and then we have seen that actually uh, even after the so-called COVID uh, era has been gone, but then you will see that a lot of people they still wear masks, a lot of people they still uh, do do not like travel uh, as frequent as before. So this is what we have seen. The employment figures from the United States still very, very robust, aren't mm. they? Mm. Something like 1.7 jobs available for every person who's not working. Um, that must be a cost-push factor. Yes, it is. So, in, in a sense, that's a sign of a very healthy economy, uh, the wage, uh, that, that also probably will drive wages up as there's more competition for those limited places. Now, um, you know, why do we expect inflation to go down next year? I think your, your listener that, that dialed in or, or sent in that question over Facebook uh, said something about the government stimulus in the U.S. during COVID, and that did push prices up. Now, for a long time, uh, the Fed in the U.S. thought that that was transitory. Uh, they got that wrong, and so they started increasing their own interest rates, and the rest of the world central banks around the rest of the world had to react to that. Now, the central banks uh, in most places that reacted very quickly and drove up their interest rates um, did pretty well in terms of managing inflation. And actually, for a lot of Asian countries and cities, especially here in Southeast Asia, we saw that that, that reaction was pretty good. And even though there was downward pressure on many currencies in uh, Asia, um, it wasn't, say, as bad as it typically was or as expected. Now, because uh, we expect that the central banks have gotten a handle on inflation for next year, um, and we've seen signals in the U.S. that the rates of rises will come down and eventually will 
will probably taper off. Uh, that's why we see uh, inflation coming down next year to, to 6.4%. Now, that's, that's still high. Let's make no bones right. about that. That is higher than, uh, than it has been for, for several years. Uh, decades, so you know it's not it's not an easy situation. What prices will come down and what prices will stay elevated? We think the prices of commodities of energy will stay elevated. Uh, the prices of foodstuffs will probably come down. You know, harvest cycles are shorter; they are able to react a little bit faster, and so perhaps prices of food will will come down. Right. Both you and Dr. Lee have been pointing to supply chain difficulties as one of the contributing factors. Um, if China really moves steadily over the next six months uh, towards living with COVID rather than trying to suppress every single case uh, with very disruptive lockdowns, could that help reduce inflationary pressure? Well, yes, abso- absolutely. Uh, you know, if you, 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 there's a big if there. At the EIU, yeah. we expect that zero COVID policy in China will be eased towards the middle of 2023. And that will have a huge effect on, on supply chains, right? So that means that there's not so much grit in the process. More of these goods will be able to uh, find their way around from all of the disruption from, from zero COVID, which is, which is currently driving prices uh, up. The, the other big thing, you know, which uh, uh, the professor mentioned as well was tourism, right? So we expect that in 2023, tourism numbers will come back not quite to 2019 levels, but just about. So in 2019, there were 1.6 billion tourist arrivals globally. Uh, and in 2023, we're expecting 1.4 billion. Who's missing? Who's that 200 million? Of that 200 million that is missing, it's about 100 million Chinese tourists right. uh, that are still not, not on the market. Right? So you can imagine that all of that, uh, China's economy opening up will have a big effect for the region especially, but globally it's a big driver of the global economy. Um, and also tourism arrivals and tourism receipts will, will go up. Dr. Lee? Yeah. You sound as though you were coming in at the beginning of that. Sorry? You sound as though you had something to say. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, actually, I think uh, uh, the global supply chain issue, the global supply chain disruption, uh, that is something for which that it happened in the in the COVID. And then uh, by the time that we when we like, for example, some of the shops that they have been closed, uh, the main issue is that the shops have been closed already. So it means that the cheapest supplier they they may have been gone already. So uh, uh, the the main problem that we are facing why the uh, supply disruption uh, in 2023, if, if, despite the most of the uh, most of the country they are recovering from the COVID. It cannot be like it cannot return to the original level. It's because of the global supply chain that they they, they have got the disruption. Uh, they have been like uh, the cheapest one has been closed, and then uh, it is very hard to uh, to 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 call back this company, and then uh, when when they have been bankrupt already, and then uh, so that's why that it is. Very. Uh, uh, by the time that we talk about like 2023, uh, it remains a hard time. But then I also agree with, the, with the, another interviewee that is that um, we will see uh, China will become the power engine in the uh, uh, in the uh, economic uh, economic recovery as well. So when they um, when they uh, when they recover, uh, we will also see that the uh, the production will come back. 
that cheaper goods will also come back, and then uh, the tourists will also come back as well. Uh, so that uh, under this uh, under this situation, then the uh, global economy should be better than uh, 2022 in terms of the stagnation, in terms of like uh, the uh, inflation, even for the inflation problem. Okay. A uh, quick uh, announcement here from the Transport Department. Seems there's a, a problem on the Chen Quano line. It says that extra travelling time can be expected, so please allow more time for travel. Uh, just, we, we talked about disruption uh, to uh, supply chains. Uh, what, of course, one of the factors there is the situation in Ukraine, the war in U- Ukraine, and, and that's a bit of an unknown factor, isn't it? Because uh, um, we don't know how that is going to uh, develop or change in the coming months. So how, how significant um, a factor is that, uh, uh, Sumana Rajaratnam? It's, it's a huge factor. So, you know, at the EIU, we expect that the war in Ukraine will last for another five years. It will look like it has looked like for the last 10 months, which each side making some gains and then suffering some losses with huge um, destruction to Ukrainian infrastructure, which makes it difficult for them to um, come back in terms of their economic growth, uh, but also, of course, in terms of their uh, ability to resist Russian forces. Now, that's, you know, war is a notoriously difficult thing to predict, but that's what our central forecast is. And that's why we think that commodity prices will remain elevated. So they will come down, uh, but they will remain elevated. Now, as I said, in Asia sitting here, we are a little bit more sheltered from uh, the, the energy prices that the whole of Western Europe is, is facing, you know, a real energy crisis there. We are a bit more sheltered here. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for food, um, for fertilizer, which is, of course, inputs into food production, you know, that's where the war in Ukraine will matter. Now, okay. what, what are, are all kind of parties, including the UN and the World Food Program, trying to do is they are trying to make sure that in some way Russian agricultural products and you know, Ukrainian agricultural products, whether they are it's wheat or it's fertilizer, is able to get into the market. Okay, right? and good. And that should have some, some kind of... Uh, Sorry to stop you there. We've got to take a short break for the news. Uh, We'll be back at three minutes past. Um, Weather today, uh, mainly cloudy. Top temperature around uh, 20 degrees. It's currently 17 degrees. Uh, Humidity is at 70%. Welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, uh, we're talking about uh, increases in the cost of living after Hong Kong was ranked uh, the fourth, the joint fourth most expensive city in the world uh, this year by the Economist Intelligence Unit. Um, we have uh, with us on the line uh, Sumana Rajaretnam, who's the Southeast Asia Director of the Economist Intelligence Corporate Network. Um, also joining us is uh, Alec Jane, CEO and Managing Director of uh, TransConsult. And before nine o'clock, we heard from uh, Dr. Rita Lee, Associate Professor at the Department of Economics and Finance at Hong Kong Shuyan University. Um, uh, uh, Alok Jane, uh, um, thanks for joining the programme. We want to talk about uh, the transport matters and transport costs and things like that. But if you could just bear with us for a moment, because I think Mike wants to pick up on, on what we were talking about just before the nine o'clock time signal. Yes, sorry, I dropped... <laughs> The, uh, just before the, uh, the news, uh, Mr. Rajaratnam was, led us into very interesting core assumption in the EIU figures that the, uh, 
that the war in Ukraine wouldn't be settled anytime soon, maybe as long as five years. Um, can you can you give us a bit more on the on the thinking on, behind that? Yes, we can. Uh, uh, I can rather. So you know, l like I said, war is a notoriously difficult thing to predict. Um, but when we look at the, the precedents, so you know what what has happened in, in Crimea, for example, and when we look at what both President Zelensky and Putin want at the moment, it just doesn't seem like they will come to a negotiated settlement. Right. And if that's the case, then you know the war will look like um, what it has over the, the last ten months, right? Where the Russians are not able to gain the territory and hold it that they want because the Ukrainians are doing a decent job on the battlefield. Uh, they are being supplied by, of course, Western uh, supports and armaments and things like that, but those are not sufficient by itself to defeat and totally to defeat uh, the Russian army. Right. right, And so that's why we'll see gains and then losses. Uh, we'll go into periods like the winter that we're going into now where uh, fighting will be a bit more muted. And of course, there's the destruction of infrastructure in Ukraine, which makes it just very, very difficult for their economy to come back and for, um, you know, things that they need to produce and manufacture to support their own war efforts will take a bit more time, you know, right. the uh, energy situation there. So that that's why that's, you know, our thinking behind it and our core assumption that the war will last for another five years. Right. The public, I must say, the public statements don't seem to be... Uh, conducive to any kind of talks. In fact, somebody who recommended we be thinking about negotiations was immediately shot down. Um, sort of, no, there can't be any negotiations at all, which is uh, suggests that you're right, that we're in for a long period of uncertainty and maybe a situation of war. Mm -hmm. All right, maybe, yeah. lock, Jane, we come, <laughs> come back to you now. Uh, since you're good enough to join us. Yeah. Good morning. What's going to happen on transport? What has good happened morning. on transport costs and what's going to happen? Well, you know, if you put that in perspective first in, in terms of international cities, I think Hong Kong has done a very decent job. And normally transport fares in Hong Kong compared to the household income uh, of, uh, of people in Hong Kong is fairly reasonable. I think it's at the bottom heap of the world. So the transport, public transport cost of travel per day is quite uh, affordable and quite reasonable within Hong Kong. But obviously what worries me at the moment is all these recent noises about fare, public transport fare increases, which is going to take us up, um, you know, quite a bit of uh, above the scale. And I think that would be an issue. But otherwise, Hong Kong remains very affordable to travel around and I think which is one of the mainstay of our economies. So New York and Singapore are jointly top of the EIU survey. Um, how about uh, transport costs there compared with uh, here in Hong Kong? So New York is certainly much higher uh, mm -hmm. than Hong Kong, whereas in Singapore, used to be competing with Hong Kong. We were very comparable uh, in the past. And in Singapore, uh, with the recent, uh, well, with the, you know, a decade ago when they changed the transport model, now the government basically subsidizes 
the fare increases in Singapore, which means the total cost of operation is not recovered, in, you know, in Singapore. So whereas in Hong Kong, we have taken a slightly different approach where the government provides zero subsidy towards fares, apart from what happened during the COVID period when there were some subsidies. But apart from that, uh, there is no direct subsidy towards fares and still the transport fares have remained quite affordable and reasonable in Hong Kong. Because I think the government here, uh, in, in a sense, compensates the individual that if you have to use a lot of public transport, you can get a rebate at the yeah. end of the month, things like that. Yeah, so that was during COVID when they introduced this uh, rebate system where you spend more than uh, $400 a month and you get a 25% of your, or, or, you know, you get a rebate of 25% of your expenditure. So yeah. that was a temporary measure. But I think on a, on a broad, broad basis where the public, if you look, just look at public transport operation as compared to the household income, Hong Kong stands uh, among the lowest in the world, actually, among the big cities, in, you know, among the lowest in the world. Would you favor a continuation of that system? Well, I certainly do. I mean, it's, it, it's a system that worked. It has uh, uh, spurred innovation. It has led to some competition in the market. And public transport companies in Hong Kong have have kind of gone above and beyond to to optimize and, and deliver efficiencies. And I think that in those senses, the markets work perfectly. So I, I do favor this system where the, there is a zero subsidy, where it's an innovation-led environment. But certainly, current increases which are coming right after this whole economic uh, impact of COVID uh, that we have all seen, I think that may be, the timing may, may not be right, or the quantum of those increases may not be sufficient. Because I'm looking at the housing suggestions um, for the temporary housing, I think 30,000 units or something. They're all in pretty uh, distant locations, uh, distant from a core urban area here. Um, so if people are going to be living there, relatively less off, well-off people, they're going to be commuting and spending a lot of money on commuting. Model had been Mike uh, had been more towards providing individual support or social subsidy towards transport to individuals rather than to transport companies. Right. It doesn't hasn't impacted the fares. So most of the people who actually live in those areas, they can avail public transport subsidy program, and they can get a certain extra rebate from the government if they fall below a certain income level. Then the government does provide them a public transport subsidy. And, 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 and anybody so the accessibility to employment is not bigger issue. Anybody aged 60 and over can ride for $2 on pretty much all public transport as well. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, yes, but that's more on the social side. Yes. Because yeah. I don't think aged above 60 are that economically active mm -hmm. uh, in the society. Mm -hmm. But even those who are economically active in the society... They, are, they can avail the public transport subsidy program. Okay, it's appropriate we're talking about transport because uh, another message here from the transport department, as I mentioned uh, before nine o'clock, there's a problem on the Chen Kuen O line. Uh, there's disruption owing to equipment failure on uh, a train near Chen Kuen O station. Uh, Chun One line services are affected uh, uh, to North Point station and Chu Keng Leng station running at five minute intervals. Um, Chu Keng Leng station 
relation to Polam Station and Lohas Park Station, our services are suspended. There's a free MTR shuttle bus that's being arranged and should be operating at affected stations. Um, passengers are advised to think about using other public uh, transport. Um, just a reminder uh, to our listeners, um, if you'd like to get involved, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 I do have a, uh, an email here from regular listener uh, Leslie Ann, but I think I'm going to uh, save it until the end of the programme. Um, uh, uh, let's see. So... Um, uh, Mike, I think, you, Mike, did you have a, you, you had a follow-up question, right? Uh, no, I think the war, yeah. the, the war thing continuing for right. maybe another right. five years. Right, is, uh, right, right. So yes. giving, giving me yeah. pause for thought. Yeah, yeah. actually, it's, it's on transport, um, Alok Jane, you've made the point before that as public transport fares go up, um, it can make private car ownership uh, look more attractive comparatively, which is not something that we necessarily want to see more traffic on the roads. Um, do, the, we always make these com comparisons between Hong Kong and Singapore. Of course, Singapore is a very expensive place to to run your own uh, motor car, isn't it? Is there, um, is there, uh, are there any sort of lessons you think that Hong Kong could learn from there? Well, uh, I think Hong Kong model and Singapore model are slightly different. Hong Kong also has, uh, the, you know, Hong Kong's high car ownership um, uh, restrictions have actually not come directly in terms of the cost of the car, but they have come in terms of cost of parking, cost of ownership, basically. Uh, that That is quite high in Hong Kong, and which has regulated the prices or, uh, or the purchase of private cars in the past. In Singapore, this certificate of entitlement, this quota system that they have, which has artificially pumped up uh, the prices of the cars. Now, what happens because of that, that per capita usage of a private car in Singapore is almost three times of that in Hong Kong. Because mm -hmm. in when you have bought a very expensive car, uh, you can only amortize it the more you use it. So more mileage you run on those cars, which means the car usage goes up. In Hong Kong, because the car ownership, uh, you know, the, the price of the car is not as high as Singapore, you don't have that incentive of running the car often. So Hong Kong still thrives on the fact that a lot of people own cars, but they don't use that car that much. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a balance in, in, in these two things. But obviously, uh, the impact of public transport prices going up is going to be that because of the increased affordability, a lot of people are going to invest into new cars. And especially when government is looking at parking as one of the public resource, and they are trying to build more public car parks, which can accommodate these, um, these new privately owned vehicles. And that is going to, I think, impact the traffic, and it's going to make things worse, and mobility in Hong Kong much worse. Yes, that's quite scary, because we're looking at these studies to... Uh, change the relative tunnel tolls to change the flow of traffic on the three of them. People are talking already about a fourth uh, vehicle tunnel. I don't know where that would be, run from where to where. But all these man <coughs> different means don't take away from the fact that road capacity is always going to be limited and priority's got to go to but public transport. Right, yeah. yeah. If you look at last 20 years, 
the road capacity has grown by only 1% and annual growth rate whereas the car numbers have grown grown by almost 4 5% in last 20 years so there is a there's a huge disparity between the private car ownership and the road infrastructure provision in the city so obviously if we go with the current rate hong kong will turn into a giant parking lot right is that an argument for we may have to regretfully think of a quota system well not necessarily we can possibly you know this whole registration first registration tax system that was introduced in 1990s and it was extremely effective unfortunately none of that has been adjusted since 1990s and i think there is a, there is certainly a case for reviewing the first registration tax which had been extremely effective in the past to to update that measure uh, to current circumstances and then you know implement it on a on a regular basis now obviously this regular review mechanism which was not built into 1990s that need to be built in so it becomes kind of an auto update uh, i don't know whether quota system that is prevalent in singapore and china are going to work so much in hong kong with the affordability rate being quite high there. Mr. Raja Rathnam, you, you also pointed to the increase in, in the cost of petrol as being a, 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 a big factor in global inflation. Um, so how much did uh, transport costs and, and the expensive car ownership contribute to uh, pushing Singapore up to the top of the table? Yeah, so Hong Kong and Singapore both have you know historically are, are generally cities that are very expensive but car prices in singapore are significantly higher mm. uh, as mr green said you know perhaps artificially pushed up but you know owing to much higher taxes and other kind of quota systems that they have um in hong kong petrol prices so again as mr green said you know the cost of using your car is much higher petrol prices are, are much higher cost of parking is much higher there much more limited parking lots as well but in these categories you know uh, food clothing transport those are extremely high in both hong kong and singapore mm -hmm. okay well uh, i have to say uh, thank you very much to both of you for joining us uh, on the program uh, this morning that was uh, sumana rajarethnam southeast asia director of the economist intelligence unit and thank you very much to um, alok jain who is a ceo and managing director of transconsult So regular listeners will know that that is now a switch to our uh, segment on the World Cup, the Football World Cup. Uh, our sports uh, correspondent, Atom Chung, is joining us now in the studio at a slightly earlier time because uh, we've just had a, a lot of action over the weekend. And, and in, well, and, I mean, from since the last time we spoke to you on Friday morning, we've had uh, all the you know the end of the group stage on Friday night, and then and, and then the knockout games uh, over the weekend, and then um, uh, overnight. So should, should we start with the most recent uh, overnight world uh, the, the the champions France uh, getting through against. Poland, and then and, it, and next they'll face England, who beat Senegal. So, yeah, that yeah. that would be a very interesting matchup. Hey, let's start with England. I, I thought they played a perfect game, beating Senegal three nil. 
I I thought England would win. I just didn't think they would win in such a convincing fashion. And uh, we saw goals from uh, Jordan Henderson and Harry Kane. And Bukayo Saka got his third goal in Qatar. So a a very straightforward win. But I thought the star of the game was uh, Jude Bellingham in the midfield, setting up uh, Jordan Henderson for that first goal and then starting the counterattack for Harry Kane for that second goal. One of the things that strikes me about this World Cup uh, maybe it should have struck me about previous World Cups as well, but I find I'm never confident predicting a result of an individual <laughs> match. I mean, every time you, you think, oh, that's a, that's a lock-on, that, that's a certainty. No, it isn't. Not when you see what Japan did, what Korea did, and so on. So I'm, a, I'm afraid I was a little bit nervous about England-Wales because I, I did some sums in my head. If Wales had beaten England, what could happen? Um, and so on. And, whoa, Senegal looked pretty good in the earlier rounds. Maybe, you know, they score a couple of goals and England haven't got the spirit. So it's an overpowering feeling that you can't actually predict with confidence, especially now we're in the knockout section. Every team is capable of beating the other team. Exactly. Anything can happen. And we're also seeing that the, the momentum doesn't carry over Right, We saw a strong start by France, but then they could lose their last game to Tunisia. Same thing with Brazil, right? winning the two games to start and then losing to Cameroon to end the group. So it's really hard to predict, hey, in the beginning, I picked Brazil and Belgium to make it to the finals. So go mm-hmm. figure, Belgium is not even in the round of 16. So, or Germany, the traditional or, powerhouse. Yeah, yeah they, they need to rebuild for sure. I mean, losing to Japan and just, you know, getting uh, ousted in the group stage. I'll just, uh, I just want to stay with England a little more. I, I wonder what you guys think, especially you, Mike, being an England fan. <laughs> what are you more excited about? England keeping three straight clean sheets or England scoring 12 goals to lead all countries in the World Cup? I'm actually excited about the goals um, because it's, it's better viewing. It's, it's better for it's better for the client, the customer, which is me as a viewer. Um, yeah, an England side that can score twelve goals, is it? That's right. And we have two, at least two of our players have scored three goals each. Yeah, yeah, they're, um, they're doing really well. Yeah, so that's exciting. I just worry that it'll it'll turn off when it's most needed. And, and on top of that, just uh, that 3 0 win by England over Senegal is their biggest win ever in a World Cup knockout match. So things are going great. So lots oh. to feel good about for England fans. Mm-hmm. I just want to talk about the France game a little bit. Uh, the story there uh, Kylian Mbappe, two yeah. goals looking so comfortable, dancing around the box, firing that ball right into the roof of the net and then curling it for that third goal in injury time. Mm. This guy's amazing. Mm. <laughs> Only 23. That's the scary part, isn't it? He's 23. That, that, and He's then, got at least two yeah. more World Cups in him. And that, that second goal, that apparently they measured the speed of the ball at 113 kilometers an hour. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he just roofed it. Yeah. So, yeah. so he is just like uh, scoring goals at will. Mm. Uh, also, uh, Olivier Giroud opened scoring in that game. To, and to that, get and France that makes on him track. France's all-time, all-time leading goal scorer. All-time top scorer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one mm-hmm. more than Thierry Henry. And he used to play for Arsenal. That's right. Mm-hmm. But he left them some yeah. years. Why on earth did Arsenal <laughs> let him go? And now he's with AC Milan. 
right. <laughs> so, so yeah, let's uh, let's go back over the weekend a little sure. bit. Sure. Back to back to Friday. So, so another very exciting game uh, with a quite a surprise result on Friday night. South Korea beating Portugal. That's right. Yeah, I, I thought South Korea got a little lucky. I really did. They didn't look good in that game. The back line looked out of sorts. In fact, in the second half, when the Koreans desperately needed a goal, it was Portugal who were still attacking. Portugal had already qualified. Um, so, so then they, they had to come back. The winning goal came in injury time, I must say, in a very nice counter and a very nice pass by Song Hyun Min. Very patient. Mm-hmm dishing it on the last second to Huan Hui Chan to get that goal. And dramatically, that goal knocked Uruguay out. I, I thought that was an exceptional run by Son. Um, there were three defenders around him, yeah. and yet he still managed to get the pass out perfectly timed. Exactly. Extraordinary, very extraordinary move. Very good display. So we'll see if the Koreans can keep that up. They play Brazil tonight. That's a tall uh, order. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I just want to mention on Saturday night, uh, Lino Messi was the star, scoring for Argentina in that 2-1 win over Australia. So uh, I think uh, the Argentinians look great up front, but I still have questions about their defense. Uh, also, the Netherlands. Hey, how about this Dutch side? Louis van Gaal being criticized for playing a boring style, but they're getting the job done. They beat the Americans 3-1. Very efficient. Here's an interesting stat. In that game, the U.S. outchanced the Netherlands 8-6, but the Netherlands made them count. They scored, and uh, I thought the star of that game was Denzel Dumfries, who uh, set up uh, the first two goals to Memphis Depay and Daly Blin, and then scored one himself. A lot depends on the personality and character of these managers. I mean, Hal, when he's sitting on the touchline, he looks he looks so arrogant. Actually, yeah. there's no other word for it. But his his personality has transferred itself across to the players. He's molded the team, and they look really, really strong. Yeah, and he's got every reason to be confident. He's been there before. He was the coach in 2014, took them to the semifinals. He's standing here like, I don't care what you guys are talking about. I know what I'm doing. Mm. He, he is very hugely experienced, isn't he? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who are the other good managers, you think? Um, I, I like the demeanor of Gary Southgate. Yeah. A bit thoughtful. Very thoughtful, uh, uh, very loyal to his players, a little too loyal sometimes. Yeah, still playing Maguire and Maguire's... You know, I like the guy, but he's a bit slow. Yeah. He's, go- he's never going to handle Mbappe. Yeah. Who is England going to have to put in the defence for that? I also like the Brazil manager, Chiche. I mean, we mm-hmm. don't talk about him enough. He's also very close to his players. He, he, he's good at putting guys in the right position to succeed. Although he's been criticised a little bit for playing Gabriel Jesus in that last game when they lost to Cameroon, when there were suspicions that uh, Jesus was injured. So now he's actually out for the tournament. But the good thing is Neymar is back tonight. He's recovered from the ankle injury, so he'll be in the Brazil lineup tonight when they go up against South Korea. Any more from the message over the weekend? Really, you want to, you want to mention... Oh, over the weekend. Uh, well, yeah, I've talked about uh, Argentina and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, we had the two games last night. Um, it's nice to see Messi scored. Mm. I, yeah, he's got three goals in Qatar now. Um, and unlike Suarez, he's still there. <laughs> he's still there. 
<laughs> yes, uh, but I must say, I, 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 so Argentina, uh, they're going to go up uh, against the Netherlands next. I, I don't mm. know which way this is going to go. We can talk more about this when, when, we, mm. when, it get, when we get closer. Sure. But like I said, I, I'm a bit um, unsure about Argentina's defense because uh, I thought Julian Alvarez, when he scored that second goal for Argentina, he got a little lucky there. Because uh, the other team made a mistake. What about tonight's matches? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Yeah. So, uh, tonight, like I mentioned, uh, Brazil versus South Korea. Um, a few interesting facts about South Korea. We all remember in 2002 when they co hosted, they made it all the way to the semifinals. But uh, ever since then, they've actually only made the last 16 ones and they never progressed past that. So, we can say South Korea has actually never won a knockout match away from home. So we'll see if they can do that tonight. Mm -hmm. The same goes for Japan. Japan has qualified for the last 16 uh, four times, also never made it past. And they're going up against the uh, 20, um, four years ago, uh, the finalists from four years ago, Croatia, who um, mm -hmm. I think they can still play better than how they did in their group. They had two goalless draws. Their only win came against Canada. With this Japan versus Croatia matchup, there's a huge age differential. All right? Uh, Luka the, Modric. That's right. Look, the key players for Croatia, Modric, Perisic, mm. uh, Kemaric, uh, Brozovic, they are all, all in their 30s. In their 30s. Mm. Mm. That the key players in the midfield are all in their 30s. And we'll see how they keep up with the Jap Japanese team, the Japanese, whose key players are in their 20s. Right, and their energy level is so high and they press so well. Yes. Okay. Oh, boy. <laughs> all right. Okay, that's great. Well, thank you very much, uh, Atom, and we'll certainly look forward to, to seeing what happens in tonight's games, and we'll uh, talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, should great. be exciting. Okay, so we're almost out of time for this morning's uh, back chat. As mentioned, um, I have an, an email here uh, from uh, Leslie Ann, who's a regular listener. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Leslie Ann is... Um, uh, not very uh, happy with the programme at the moment. She says uh, the the subject line is back chat. There is no back chat. She says, uh, dear back chat, what's happened to you? You used to have uh, interesting uh, people, experts on your show, lively discussion was with the public, talk show host and guests uh, via calling in or emails. Uh, however, it's now extremely dull usually with 45 minutes uh, lecture on HIV or some other topic followed by a short 15 minutes on another even less significant topic uh, uh, than the news. Um, I can't remember the last time someone called in, and if we have even one email read out, then that is lucky. Uh, the last three emails I've written in have not been read, so I'm not encouraged to write in again. Um, and then Leslie Ann says, uh, why don't you encourage uh, call-ins and emails for 45 minutes, then for the last 15 minutes use this time to read out emails from unrelated topics. OK, well, thank you for that, and I'm sorry that... Um, I'm sorry that your emails weren't uh, read out. The last three emails you mentioned, Leslie-Anne, we do try to read out uh, all of the emails we receive, as long as they you know, make sense and, and don't include any, uh, you know, anything uh, that uh, you don't want to hear on air. But, um, yeah, uh, we'll try and do better. Um, um, and a reminder to our listeners, yeah, really, I mean, do give us a call, 233 uh, 